This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Hello, awesome listener. This is Rita Jablonski here, and we are on episode 59. Yes. I tried to record this earlier last week, Sunday and Monday, and everything just went nuts on the program. I couldn't get my mic to work. I couldn't get the software to behave itself. And after I spent all this time recording the podcast, I went to export it and it just crashed. So it's been one of those weeks with technology. And I apologize that you've been waiting for this episode, but here it is. Essentially, sometimes on the windshield, sometimes I'm the bug. I was definitely the bug this week. However, before I begin, I have some exciting news. The Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast has been included in Feedspot's Top 25 Dementia Podcasts of 2022. In fact, it made it to number seven. Not bad for a little one-person upstart. I have the link in the show notes if you want to read the article. But you know what? Make Dementia Your Bitch is growing and it's climbing up the charts because of you. You are listening. You are rating and reviewing. And you are telling all of your friends, people in your support group, maybe the random person at the grocery store, don't care. But you're spreading the word. And I appreciate that. Because you know what? There are six million people in the U.S. alone who have a dementia diagnosis. And at least 15 million caregivers. And let's face it. The resources in this country for dementia caregivers sucks ass. We're sending money to different countries. We're putting some fuckwad on the moon. But what are we doing about the people here on Earth? What are we doing about the people right here in our own country? It's great to send money to Alzheimer's research. But I hate to break it to you. There are drugs in the works. There are drugs that have been approved but I think the models are way too simplistic. I don't think we're there yet. And it is great for research, but it has to be two-pronged. While we're engaging in research studies and clinical trials, we also need resources for family caregivers, legitimate, realistic resources. I think this country is dumping too much on the family, my humble opinion, and I'm not trying to make this a political episode. But I'm also on the front lines with you. I hear you. I see you in clinic. I hear you and see you in my webinars. We're not fucking stupid people. We know the situation with dementia caregiving really does suck. It is pitiful. 
And I think we need to look at places like the UK that do a much better job than this country. And I think it's shameful, the lack of resources for dementia caregivers. So I'm basically preaching to the choir people. And it's been an interesting week in clinic. It's been an interesting week with the answering messages and working with family caregivers. And this the theme this whole week is basically people with their backs to the wall. So for this episode, I want to talk about why encouraging self-care can help slow down memory loss in people living with dementia. I want to talk about how you can slow down memory loss by encouraging a person living with dementia to do as much of their own care as possible. First, I'm going to talk about something called procedural memories. Procedural memories are memories of how to do things like brush your teeth, tie your shoes, get dressed, even make a cup of coffee or tea. Your brain has the ability to create memories that become automatic autopilot. Another way to think about your procedural memories and your autopilot memories is to think about computer software or apps. If you want to accomplish something, gone are the days where you have to write any code. I got some years on me and I will tell you, I used like Word version 1.0, and before Word, there was something called WordPerfect, and there were other programs, and these word processing programs, you didn't have a really slick toolbar at the top where you could point and click and do fancy things. I actually had to have a little bit of code knowledge because I had to embed HTML codes in my documents in order to have things like indents, have things like bold or italic. So I can remember the bad old days when I was using the word processing software and I had to have a basic knowledge of HTML code. And it sounds awful to all of you listening, but after typing a thesis on a typewriter where if you screwed up you had to retype the whole page to me the first time I used a computer with word processing software it felt magical but getting back to computer software or apps like I said you don't have to write any code you download this magical app on your computer or tablet or smartphone and you push it and things magically happen like right now not right now because it would have screwed up my internet, but before the, the I recorded this podcast, I was updating the firmware on my router, and all I had to do was download the little Netgear icon and push some buttons, and it magically did it. I thought that was so cool. I have apps that help me plan meals, log exercise, even help me with my meditation practice. So these apps, these autopilot, these shortcuts... A similar thing happens in your brain. You create autopilot memories from the time you are first born, and they continue to be created throughout adulthood. The more you do something, the deeper the procedural memory becomes. Most of us learned how to do things in the following order. When we first are born, one of the first things we do is, besides cry and poop, is swallow. 
Then we learn how to feed ourselves with our fingers, crawl, walk, talk, use utensils to eat, go potty, dress ourselves, brush our teeth, tie our shoes, read, ride a bike, drive, balance a checkbook, use computers, use smartphones. When people develop dementia and neurons start to die off, the new, the, rather the most recently created procedural memories die away first. And that's because the newer procedural memories have smaller networks and have fewer neurons. So if I'm losing nerve cells throughout the brain, Anything that has fewer neurons is going to get wiped away first. Right. You actually lose your procedural memories in the reverse order that you develop them. And that's because anything you learn to do early in your life and you keep doing every day, like brushing your teeth or dressing yourself, every time you perform that action, all of the neurons fire up and they continue to create new linkages and to become more intertwined. Another way to think of it is, okay, another way to think of this is, I have a yard, and Amira, I've only had her for two years. But let's say we lived in this house for 20 more years, and heaven willing, Amira lives I'd love her to live forever because I love her, but she's a dog. But let's say it she lives with me for 15 years. And two, three, four times a day for 15 years, I let her out of the back door and she runs around the yard in the same direction and in the same path. She wears down that path because four times a day, every day for 15 years, she travels that route. So not only does she wear a path in the grass, it gets to the point where she now creates like a rut all around the yard of this one path. So after 15 years, she goes to doggy heaven. I decide I'm going to go move into a senior center or some type of cool place, not a senior center, but there are these communities for 55 and up. And my son is a state trooper in Florida, and he has been called to some of these 55 and up communities because, you know, two people got into a head-on collision with their golf carts. And he said to me, think fraternity and older adult. It is the worst of both worlds. That anyway, he was the one who suggested at some point I go to these places and spend the remainder of my days partying. Thanks, Mark. I don't know. But let's say after 15 years, Emilia goes to doggy heaven, and I go, I just live out my days. When the next people buy my house, they're going to go out in that yard, and they're going to see this almost permanent rut that Amira created by running around in the same yard for 15 years. That's an example of a procedural memory that you've been doing since childhood, and it is so well-worn in your brain and has so many neurons connected to it, it's one of the last to go. 
Contrast that to me walking out my front door and walking across my lawn to go put the trash cans out. When I walk across the wet grass and I turn around, I see my footprints because I smushed down the grass blades. Within 10 minutes, the little grass, grass blades can't talk, the little grass blades spring up and you don't see my footprints. That's an example of a procedural memory that was recently created. It's not carved deep in your brain. It has fewer neurons. And the neurons aren't really committed to that procedural memory. They're part of it, but they don't have the history of firing together and hanging out together like the older procedural memories. Didn't mean to belabor that, but procedural memories are kind of weird. And I wanted to make sure I was explaining that clearly. So that's why when people develop dementia and the neurons start to die off, the newest procedural memories fade away first. And that's why you lose the procedural memories in the reverse order you develop them. Interestingly enough, the loss of the procedural memories also coincide with the loss of short-term memories, followed by the loss of longer-term memories. Both of these losses, loss of regular memories and loss of procedural memories, actually create a situation where the person living with dementia is literally moving backwards in time. And that moving backwards in time can often trigger refusals because you'll say, hey, dad, it's time for your shower. And your dad's meaning of time has been altered, and he has access to a memory of taking a shower. And even though it might be a memory from 10 years ago, it feels like it just happened. So he looks at you like you've lost your marbles and says, I don't have to take a shower. I just did. Meanwhile, you're looking at your dad and like the, the flies are circling around him and the wallpapers are peeling because he hasn't had a shower in like three weeks. And that can be really frustrating. And often at that point, most people start launching into arguments or using logic to explain to dad why he's wrong. Yeah, no, don't. And I know I talk about that in other podcasts, but you're trying to convince someone that the reality that they are experiencing, because it's real to them, isn't real. And that is not going to set you up for success. The second topic I want to talk about is why people living with dementia may take forever, may take a long time to do something. And often I hear families say, it's just easier for me just to put a shirt on, otherwise it's going to take them 90 minutes to get the shirt on. There's another way of looking at that. When you perform an activity, say putting on your shirt, your brain has to coordinate different sections and make the actions happen in the right order. And I was reading one of my neurology journal articles where they were, they had uh, people getting functional MRIs. They put this like word net over their head and they can do an MRI while the person is performing an activity. And before the person started the activity, the parts of the brain that were going to be involved all lit up. 
And then as the person was doing the activity, then whatever part of the brain was involved at that moment was like the brightest. So I thought that was pretty cool. So let's say you're putting on your shirt. First, the visual section helps you to recognize which shirt you want. Is it the blue one, the green one? Is it the summer shirt? Is it the heavy-duty winter shirt? You have to make a decision which shirt it is you're going to put on. And you're thinking that's not hard. A lot of different sections of the brain are involved with that. The visual cortex, the motor cortex, the executive part, because you're weighing and measuring decisions like, well, 110 degrees outside, so maybe that wool shirt is a really bad idea. Then the different motor sections of the brain have to coordinate movements of your hand, fingers, and feet, and even your head, because you're putting the shirt over your head, or maybe you're buttoning it. These signals are flying back and forth from the different sections of your brain, and these signals have to travel on highways, also known as neural networks. They literally play like relay races where the first neuron fires and that triggers the second neuron to fire and then that causes the third neuron to fire. Another way to think of it is dominoes. If you've ever seen people line up all the dominoes and then they hit one and they all start falling in a methodical order, that's what's happening in a much more complicated manner in your brain. As neurons are lost from dementia, part of your network, parts of your highway go away. The highways start shrinking. They start going from six lanes to five and a half until they shrink to the point where you're looking at a two-lane country road. And when you have activities that in the past involved lots of parts of your brain and lots of neurons, and there was a great deal of traffic going through your brain's superhighways. Now you have the disease of dementia tearing apart those highways, those pathways, and making them smaller. So you may have a significant number of neurons that still need to travel, but the highways are so small, it's like a traffic jam. Every morning when I go to the university where I teach and practice, I am on an interstate. And usually that interstate is doing okay, but there's a lot of traffic. And if everything's fine, we all move at 65 miles an hour, some of us way faster, and we all get to our destination. Every once in a while, there's an accident, or there's a tractor trailer that decides to backknife and fall over. And these four to six lanes are now down to two. So you have all of this traffic stuck, trying to squeeze their way through the two open lanes. And that means the commute is extremely slow, extremely frustrating, and Instead of getting to work in 20 minutes, I might get to the parking deck in 90, which then sets my whole day on its head. That type of thing is happening in a person living with dementia. These brain changes result in people living with dementia moving slower and taking longer to do tasks that they previous did effortlessly 
and quickly. So as you're listening to the podcast, do you see where your family member may be doing things more slowly than they did in the past? And are you seeing how it may be more effortful for them to do these things? The last topic I want to talk about is how changes in the brain can cause people living with dementia to see our caregiving as something scary. Some caregiving activities can trigger the flight or fight response in people living with dementia. The parts of the brain that understand that people are here to help us may not be working properly. So people living with dementia may misinterpret a caring encounter as an attack or assault and refuse care. And in some of my other podcasts, I dive even deeper with which parts of the brain. And I talk about the amygdala, which is, there's actually two of them. Amygdala is plural, amygdala is one, but most of us just say amygdala because we're lazy. But you have this piece of your brain that its job is to tell the brain, uh-oh, you're in trouble. Uh-oh, something is wrong, or that snake is not a, is a bad idea, don't go near it. That's a stranger, be cautious. The amygdala is part of our fight or flight response, and all it does is it detects that something could be dangerous, and it's the rest of the brain that has to figure out if the danger is legitimate or if it's okay. And I often use the example of a smoke detector. A smoke detector says there's smoke. It doesn't tell you what kind of smoke. It doesn't tell you the origin of the smoke. It goes off. So in my house, when the smoke detector goes off, it either means, oh shit, I have a fire, or usually it means dinner's ready. And all I do is I hear the smoke detector, I look around the house, and and in a couple of seconds, I understand what caused the smoke detector to go off. And if dinner's ready, hooray. If there's a fire, I have to grab Amira and Gandalf and run out. Here's another way to look at a care activity being perceived as a threat from the perspective of your family member living with dementia. People living with dementia, especially as it gets worse, they do not perceive the environment maybe the way we do because it's hard for them to filter things out. It's hard for them to pay attention to everything that's going on. So imagine you're sitting in your kitchen or in your living room, and next thing you know, one of your adult children starts to shove a toothbrush in your mouth without warning. You didn't see it coming. You didn't hear them say anything. They just materialized and started shoving a toothbrush into your mouth. What would you do? I know what I would do. I would be jerking my head back in surprise. I would probably start pushing their hand away because I can't talk if there's a toothbrush in my mouth. And I, at first I'd be confused. And if they continued to stick this toothbrush in my mouth, I'm going to get progressively angry, and I may stand up, push them away, and leave the situation. I don't mean to hurt them. I'm protecting myself, because why is Sarah standing there with a toothbrush shoving it in my mouth? Has she lost her freaking mind? 
Okay? That's my reality. Sarah's reality may be, she said to me, Mom, you need to brush your teeth, go to the bathroom. I didn't respond, so she decided to bring the toothbrush to me. And that's where the problem is. The activity is out of context, and she didn't give me enough of a preamble that made sense to me. So in her reality, she told me she was going to do it. I didn't respond, and she brought it to me because she's concerned about my oral health. In my reality, she materialized out of nowhere. And really, people living with dementia do start to have problems with what's called visual spatial, which they have trouble interpreting visual stimuli and figuring out if things are far away, if they're close. And there is a type of dementia called cortical basal degeneration. And that is a syndrome that not only affects memory, but it also targets the part of the brain where the person interprets visual stimuli. So their eyes work, their retina works, but the images that are sent to the brain are not being linked to what the images mean. And it's, uh, I think I'm going to have to do a whole episode on that because it's a rarely, well, it's considered a very rare syndrome, but in the clinic where I work, where we see all the rare stuff, I, I see some stuff before lunchtime that honestly, I think they're neurologists out in the community that have never seen it their entire career. Well, maybe they saw it. They didn't know what they were. They didn't know what they were seeing. They perhaps missed the diagnosis or the diagnostic boat. But that's the cool part about working in a academic medical center that's one of the top in the country where people come to us because nobody else in the community can figure out what's going on. So that that's you know, why I love working where I work. So what I was going with this is something may be rare, but if you're the one dealing with it, it's not rare. And I'm going to have to probably devote an episode to that. But I'm going to take a quick break. However, before I do, I want to make sure everybody listening knows I have a webinar Monday, which is Labor Day in the U.S., 6 p.m. Central, and it's my monthly dementia education support webinars. It's interactive. And people have been asking me to record them, but I don't want to record them because people are asking questions and they feel comfortable. And not everybody wants themselves recorded for posterity. You know, they want to protect themselves. They want to protect their loved ones. Maybe they don't want the idiot family member that they mentioned on the call who's being an asshole. They don't want that family member to listen to the recording and go, you called me an asshole. Shoe fits. But anyway, there's a lot of reasons why I don't like to record those education and support sessions because of the people participating. Anyway, Monday, six o'clock, I'll be on the webinar. Can't wait to see you and hear from you. And I feel all your questions. It's kind of a fun hour. If you're interested, the link is in the show notes and you can click and register. If you are receiving my newsletter, you are finding out these things. And also on the Make Dementia Your Bitch website, there is a tab where it has this, all the 
webinars for this entire year. I think I went up to May 2023. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to talk strategy like I always do. So don't go away. Now, I want to talk about ways you can support your family members' procedural memory without causing them to misinterpret your activities as an attack or assault. When your family member struggles to do something or it takes a long time for them to do something, it is tempting to do it for them. It is 100% natural to want to be helpful or to keep them from being embarrassed. However, the more of their care that you take over, the faster your family member can lose these procedural memories. This is because brain cells, neurons, only fire when they are used. If they stop firing for some time, they die off. It is a situation of use it or lose it. Ironically, the more you try to help your family member, the more likely they may refuse your help. It is a well-known finding in dementia research studies about care refusal behavior in people living with dementia that the more care they need, the more likely they are to refuse that care, in part because they may be misinterpreting the care as an attack or assault. You can support their procedural memories and help prevent refusal behavior by encouraging them to provide as much as their own care as safely possible. This is an important strategy, allowing them to do their own care. You may find that you have to help them with each step. This is where you can integrate other approaches as well. You can get more cooperation by keeping your approach pleasant, smiling when you interact with them. Smiling and being pleasant also reduces the likelihood that your family member may misinterpret a caregiving activity as an assault and then resist. You can also add in one-step commands, cueing, such as put soap on the washcloth, wash your right arm, wash your left arm. Priming can also be combined with these strategies And priming is basically setting everything up before you start so that you don't interrupt their care running off to get a towel or looking for a bathrobe. These interruptions can trigger care refusal behavior. Routines and schedules are also important to help maintain procedural memories. We use routines and schedules with young children to create procedural memories. We use routines and schedules with people living with dementia to maintain procedural memories. It is best to schedule activities that your loved one is refusing to do at times where he or she is at their best. If your loved one is calmest at mid-morning, that may be the time to give a bath or shower. When caregivers experience care refusals, They often decide to only engage in an activity, say once or twice a week, to avoid the conflict. The problem here is that the less your family member engages in a specific care activity, 
the more likely he or she will become less able to do it and then require more help. And then that requires this negative cycle where they need more help. They're more likely to resist care. You limit the activity because you're thinking, oh my gosh, I can't go through with this. Every time I try to give her a bath, it's reward. This makes sense, but it really helps to keep up a schedule and a routine where you do things more frequently. And one approach that you may find really helpful is something called chaining. Chaining is when you begin the activity and the person living with dementia finishes up. For example, if I'm helping my family member brush their teeth, I'll put the toothbrush in their hand and then I might guide their hand to start brushing their teeth and as they gain momentum, I'll take my hand away. Meanwhile, as I'm chaining, I also usually add in gestures and pantomime where I am mimicking brushing my own teeth while I'm helping them start the activity and then I let them loose and let them continue. It's really interesting because I've done this with brushing people's teeth and once I get them started, they'll often go to town. The same goes for things like showering and washing themselves. Now, again, you may need to add in some respectful one-step commands to remind them, okay, now wash your other arm, wash your lady parts, watch your naughty, wash your naughty bits, however you want to get them to wash different parts of themselves. So personally, I like to combine chaining with gestures and pantomime. So I hope that these strategies are useful. And as I said before, I have a free webinar on Monday, Labor Day, September 5th at 6 p.m. Central. The link is in the show notes. And also, if you have questions and concerns, my email is in there. Send me an email. I do respond. Also, I have a couple of one-on-one coaching openings So if you want to get help for you and your family member and you want to work with me personally, again, drop me an email and we can set up a a call to see if our expectations are aligned and if this is something that would work out. Now, I've been asked, what exactly do I do with coaching? What are my limits? First, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. I don't help you find nursing homes. What I do is I work with you to help you figure out strategies to prevent and manage a lot of behaviors that occur in people living with dementia. I can also give you guidance for what the next steps are. I may say this is something you need to involve an elder attorney with or If you're looking at a facility, these are questions you ask the administrator and these are some red flags that say, hell no, I'm not putting my family member in there. Or these may be some things that you want to make sure the facility is providing. So I hope that helps because as 
I'm interacting with more listeners and more people are joining my newsletter. I am finding that some people are joining me in the middle of the podcasts and they haven't listened to me that long or they don't know me that well and they're not sure of what exactly that I do. And I get that. Some days I'm confused and I don't know what I do. But like I said, I'm here and I do have different programs and things that I offer that hopefully will help. And last, about the third week in September, keep an eye out for my Confident and Confident Dementia Caregiving Program. It's a group program with pre-recorded content, also live coaching sessions. So I'll be talking about that more as we get closer to September. And we are getting very close to September. I cannot believe it's the end of August. So thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope to hear from you. And together, we can make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia, and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.